Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Bruce, for reading that passage for us this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Press Cool Springs. Good to be with you all today. I spent the last week in Memphis. Um, we have our General Assembly, which is the annual conference for uh, our denomination, the, the Presbyterian Church in America. And I had the distinct privilege this, this past week of being able to drive my friend Marty McNeely to Memphis from Nashville. Marty is a pastor in Northern Ireland, and he and I have become friends over the years. I've, I've stayed in his home uh, he's come to visit us, and, uh, and he's just, he's a dear brother. And Marty's experience as a pastor is, is in Northern Ireland, is just, it's a different kind of experience than what, than what I know here in the West, and he, in, in America. And he asked me a question once um, that I've thought about a lot, and, and the question is this, he's, and I'm not even going to try to do his, his Irish brogue, because I'll just butcher it, um, but he said, brother... The people in your congregation, are they willing to suffer and die for the name of the Lord Jesus? And thinking of myself, I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I think about that question, and I think about what Peter's writing here. We just need to admit that in America we have a very unique experience of what Christianity is. It's pretty unique in time and space. And as I was thinking about that this week at General Assembly, I had an upsetting thought. I was working on this sermon and I, and I, and I had a very upsetting thought that I'd like to share with you and it is this. It's that I think, if I were being completely honest, that I would have to tell you that I believe in a kind of a prosperity gospel. Then I had a second upsetting thought, a further thought that I will now share with you, and it is this. I think that if most of you were honest, you would say that you too believe in a kind of prosperity gospel. The problem is that we have defined in a particular way in America what the prosperity gospel is. It's a, it's a proper noun, 
capital P, capital G, Prosperity Gospel. And we associate it with kind of a name it and claim it sort of business that says, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have lots of things. God wants you to walk around with a kind of a plastic happiness to which we look at and we say, no thanks, that's gross. (laughs) But what if we took it from being a proper noun and just made it a lowercase? And we, we took the cultural distinctions that we think of away and we just look at it on its surface. Here's a question. I'm coming in hot this morning. <laughs> Is there any connection in your mind and heart between your faith in God and some sense that he owes you, in turn, a good and relatively easy life? There's an exchange there. Will you consider this morning that perhaps you operate in real time as though the enterprise of your faith exists to shield you from difficulty? And that when you experience certain difficulties, you have certain expectations of God that can leave you feeling at times as though he has let you down. Either by allowing certain things to happen or by failing to prevent certain things from happening. How can you know? How can you know if this is how we operate? Peter gives us a great, great litmus test here. When you face trials and testings, Are you surprised? When trials and tests come your way, how do you respond? And then the very important follow-up question, why do you respond that way? Are you surprised when you're tested, when trials come, when life is hard? If so, why are you surprised? What's the reason that you're surprised? Do you think hardship is strange, unexpected? Do you think this isn't supposed to be happening to me? And if you think it shouldn't be happening to you, why do you think it shouldn't be happening to you? Is it because you believe that God somehow owes you better? That his role in your life is to make this life easy, problem-free, flush with enough provision that you don't really worry anymore about making ends meet? Shouldn't you at some point in your spiritual journey reach a place where you're, you're, you're bringing in enough to not worry about it? Do you see why I might suggest that we do believe in a kind of a prosperity gospel here in the West? We may scoff at the idea of God wanting us to have opulent mansions with things plated in gold and gaudy clothing and all of that, but many of us, I think if we're honest, believe functionally that a big part of God's role in our lives, is to make the road that we walk as easy as it can be. And we know this because when that road gets hard and we face testing and trial, we look to God and we say, well, what are you doing? We look to God and we say, you're letting me down. How? It's so plain to me how you have dropped the ball here. Why do we do this? Why do we function this way? I think one of the reasons we function this way is because we don't understand the function of suffering in our lives. 
When hardships come and testings arise, we assume this has no purpose, it's an aberration, it has no meaning, and so we look at it as just God dropping the ball, it's a failure on his part, or if we don't see God that way, but we see him more as a stern father, we might say, no, no, these are warning shots across the bow. This is God telling us to straighten up and fly right or it's about to get a lot worse. What if there's a deeper purpose behind our suffering and trials that God actually uses to bless us? What if there's a purpose behind the suffering and trials that God uses to make our lives actually richer? That's what Peter's talking about here in this passage. Let's look. Last week's sermon, we talked about suffering. We talked about suffering a lot in this book, but we talked about suffering last week that comes as the result of sin. This week, we're talking about suffering that comes as a result of righteousness. If you are going to plant your feet as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are going to follow him, if you are going to live publicly as a Christian, seeking righteousness, you will suffer for that. Jesus said that. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. He said people will hate you because of me. But here we're talking about a righteous a suffering that comes as a result of righteousness. But in this we taste something. We taste and experience the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are joined to him in this. What's the meaning of our suffering in Christ? Peter here takes a, a tender tone toward this church because he is speaking to people who are facing persecution where their lives are in the balance. Up to this point in the letter, he's spoken a lot about this. He's spoken about the believer's citizenship and inheritance in the kingdom of God quite eloquently. He's talked about how as we face trials, this world is not our ultimate home and that we need to look no further than Christ's victory over the grave to be assured of this. And then Peter says, in effect, you should expect suffering to be part of living in this world, especially if you endeavor to live as a follower of Jesus Christ, because this is a world that is frustrated. This is a world that is frustrated by the fall, and a world that is frustrated by the fall is going to respond to those who seek to walk in righteousness with reviling. And when that happens, Peter says, rejoice in that suffering. And this is the place where we may just get off the bus and say, what are you talking about, rejoice in suffering? Are you saying, are you saying I should just look at my suffering and, and, and try to not think of it as what it is, and I should just try to put a happy face on it? I should try to just do this kind of mental gymnastic that says it's not as bad as it is? Why rejoice in it? When we rejoice in our suffering, Peter is not saying make less of it than what it is. He's saying make everything of what it is. How do we rejoice in it? Well, when we understand that in our suffering, we're walking the same road as our Lord. It is an indication that your life is so closely tied to Jesus that your path to glory in his presence, the reason you walk the road anyway, that you're, you're, you're the, the path to glory in his presence involves sharing in his suffering. And sharing suffering binds people together in uncommon ways. It's, it's the story, right? It's a common story of, of soldiers in foxholes, right? In times of war, they bond 
by way of their suffering that makes them brothers for life. I was the first on the scene of an accident this week. Everybody was okay, but I was the first on the scene of an accident. And when you are the first on the scene of an accident and you find a victim in a car who's in shock over what has just happened, and you say words of assurance, you're okay, and you hold their hand, you bond with that person. You didn't know them 30 seconds ago, and yet there is a bond that forms because of the suffering that's happening. And it's a gift that the Lord gives the church to say your lives are going to be bonded together by way of your suffering. Because think about how great of a gift this is. It means that when we come up against the brokenness of this world with others, the pain and the struggle and the hope for healing that all rush in, they rush in and they become a part of the foundation of the friendships that we now have with each other. Like we instinctively attract to those we suffer with so that we can have this reminder, this assurance that we're not walking through this life alone, as difficult as it can be. And the Lord says, yes, you're not. Here's the body of Christ. Walk together. And that's important because Peter is writing to Christians who are facing persecution and they are wondering, very understandably, why they have to suffer at all. Why doesn't the Lord just get rid of it all? Why face this abuse? Peter doesn't wave the question away But his answer doesn't exactly explain why it's happening either. But what he does is he talks about the meaning behind it. He talks about the meaning behind our suffering. And he says, we find suffering in two very important ways. The first is that when we suffer because of Christ, that suffering mirrors his suffering. And so if we're mirroring his suffering in this journey, it's a reminder that we will also mirror him in his glory. That just as his path of suffering led to glory, the suffering that we walk through in the name of Christ is leading us to the same place. It's leading us into his presence and his glory forever, which leads us to the second thing. So the first important meaning is that it's mirroring the suffering of Christ as we suffer. But the second is this, is that as it's mirroring the suffering of Christ, and it's leading us to glory, we're reminded through our suffering, we're instructed through our suffering that our suffering doesn't have the power to destroy us. It just doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the power no no matter how great it may seem at the time. It cannot ultimately destroy us, come what may. What does it do instead? It purifies us. He talks about it being like a refiner's fire that it's a purifying thing, this suffering, because it's stripping away from us any sense that we can hold on to this world and control it. And it's making us say, Lord, reduce me down to nothing except somebody who clings to you. We don't suffer as people condemned, but we suffer as those on whom Christ's glory rests, he says. And in that sense, all of the suffering that we experience in this world is leading us into renewal. And it's why Christ suffered. Christ suffered in order to bring us to God. It is by his suffering that we are saved. 
And so we may look at our suffering and say, well, the reason I suffer is because God is extracting something from me in order to contribute something to my redemption. And friends, that's just a lie. It's, a, it's not possible. It's not possible that our suffering is somehow adding to our salvation. And the reason that we know it's not possible, the reason that we know when we suffer we're not paying for sins, is because God is a just God. And if God has accepted the sacrifice of Christ as the payment for our sins, for my sins, then to say that he has caused suffering in my life as a means to make me pay also would be God demanding two payments for my sin, and that would be unjust, and God is not unjust. So what is going on here? Edmund Clowney, a professor, a theologian, he says this. He says, we partake of Christ's suffering not by contributing to his atonement, but by following in his steps. As we suffer for Christ, we are linked to him. Our sufferings witness to his suffering. We did not see Jesus on the cross as Peter did, but like Peter, we understand the meaning of his atoning death. Because he suffered for us, we can rejoice when we are counted worthy to suffer for him. The reality of our suffering for Christ becomes a pledge to us of the reality of our belonging to Christ. And that in itself brings joy to our hearts. It also strengthens our hope. If like Christ we suffer according to God's will, we know that like Christ we shall enter the glory of the Father. And so joy lies before us, he says. The joy of seeing Christ in his glory in the great day when he will come again. Suffering then is not a threat but a promise. The pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of our lives too. Suffering makes us uncomfortable here. It creates in us a deeper longing for his glory to be revealed. And so then we suffer, and as we suffer, we long for where, the, where this journey will take us. And where it will take us is where it took Christ, into the glorious presence of the Father. And so we long for the day when he will come and when he will make all things new. However, Peter is also telling the church here that the glory of Christ is more than just a future hope. It is also a present possession. It's something that we hold on to now. He says it in verse 414. He says it like this. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. God is present with you when you suffer in his name. He is with you. And so it's a blessing for us now when we suffer because it gives us the ability to see the strength of our bond with Jesus and to see that that strength, that bond is not broken by the threats or the insults that come our way. They just can't, they don't have the power to do that. They don't have the power to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And yet, suffering's hard. And it can be a very grim reality. And Peter knew this. I mean, he was in prison. He knew this. He'd been beaten. He had lost friends for this faith that they shared. James, the brother of John. He'd been beaten. He'd seen his friends die as martyrs. 
He believed that he too would die by the same fate, and he also knew that many of the people he was writing to would also experience horrible realities as followers of Jesus. And he's asking the question, will you be ready to suffer and die for the name of Jesus? And this turns Peter's attention now in verses 17 to 19 to judgment. He reminds us, in all the suffering that you experience, all the brokenness, all the injustice, all these things, judgment is coming. It's coming. So do good. Trust God. Entrust your souls to his mercy. And then he calls back to something Malachi said, the last book in the Old Testament, something Malachi said about God's judgment in verses 3, 2 to 3. He said this, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. This judgment is coming. And he's saying Christians are the first to be judged. How are we the first to be judged? We've already been judged by the finished work of Christ. He has robed us in his righteousness. He has taken our sin upon himself. We have already stood before the judgment seat of God in that sense and have been declared not guilty because of the righteousness of Christ. And then he goes on to say this strange thing. He talks about if a righteous person is scarcely saved... How much more for the person who doesn't know God? We may ask the question, what is scarcely saved? Does that mean like barely, just barely saved or partially saved? What he's saying here is he's saying, he's saying no, that, that we are saved in the midst of trouble. It's not that the Lord waits for us to be in the clear and then he redeems us. It's that we're saved in the midst of trouble. Salvation comes to lives that are filled with sorrow. Lives that are filled with trouble. Lives that are filled with anxiety. And yet, this persecution is like a refining fire. It's a means of purifying divided hearts. And in this way, Peter says, persecution you should see as a kind of honor. But it's an honor that we just can't expect to see clearly in this life. We, you just can't see it, this side of glory, how it's an honor. But, but think about it for a minute with me. If the Lord allows suffering by persecution, and the reason he allows suffering by persecution is because of our bond to our God who will never let us go, we're suffering for righteousness, and that suffering is the means by which we are drawn into his presence more deeply, then I have to think that in glory our view of this suffering that we face in this life, which we will see then with clear eyes, will include a sense that the Lord has honored us by bringing us into his presence in a way that is similar to the way that he brought us into his grace through the suffering of Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's an honor in sharing in the suffering of Christ as it's leading us into the glory of God. Now you may be thinking, is it helpful to talk this way? Is it, is it helpful to try to put a spiritual bow on suffering? Is it helpful to try to fluff it up so that it doesn't look that bad? Well, first of all, that's not what I'm trying to say, but it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question because it is really frustrating when people respond to suffering with trite sayings like, well, everything happens for a reason, 
or God must have something really great in store for you. Of course he has something really great in store for you. Eternity in his presence in face-to-face perfect relationship with him. Yes, he has that in store for you, but in this life, who knows what he has for you? Don't go looking to the 12 apostles for a happy answer to that question. Because almost all of them were martyred for this. Peter is saying, in effect, look, the ledger of justice is going to be perfectly balanced. Before the judgment throne of God, judgment will happen. Justice will happen. No injustices will remain. No debts will remain unpaid. And you can rest in the assurance of this. That will be the case. But even as he is saying this, he is challenging this way of thinking that is just so incredibly present in our culture here in the West, which is this. We have a way of equating God's blessing with a carefree life. And so we talk of the goodness of God often in relationship to our ease of life. When things are going well, God is good. And when we're suffering or struggling, God is silent or he's absent. We wonder where he is. And in this lies a presumption that we have about him that is not found in scripture. And it is the idea that God exists to grant us ease. That God exists to grant us more. Prosperity. And you may say, no, 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 I abhor the prosperity gospel as we know it in America, but I just invite you to consider that by virtue of living in the West in a land of plenty, we all fall prey at least to some form of a prosperity gospel, this belief that we should get back the good that we put in, that we should be rewarded for faithfulness in the form of predictable outcomes, that we should be rewarded for faithfulness in the form of unbroken stretches of comfort. How do we know if we fall and pray to this? We are surprised by difficulty. We are surprised by trials. Why would we be surprised by them? Because somewhere deep in our hearts, we believe we don't deserve them. Or that God exists to shield us from them. And so we think suffering and trials are strange. And Peter says they're not strange. It's part of the deal here. And Peter would know. He has seen firsthand what it means to suffer as somebody who follows Christ. And he's also seen firsthand the strength of the bond between the believer and the Lord. He saw it when Christ reinstated him. He saw how unassailable the connection between Christ and those who love him truly is because when Jesus asked Peter three times Peter do you love me and Peter said yes Lord you know that I love you he didn't ask him three times because he was trying to get Peter to change his answer he asked him three times because Peter was telling the truth do you do do I love you yes I love you and I deny you yes I love you and I betray you yes I love you and I collapse in an instant at the accusation of a child 
for fear of what might happen to me if I'm known for associating with you, and yet I love you. Peter understands how unassailable that connection is because Christ kept him. And even when that happened in that reinstatement, Peter was nowhere near the end of his own personal sufferings in his life. He's getting near here, though. And what Peter is saying is that all this suffering is leading. It's leading to a glory that you can't even imagine. And even if it takes your mortal life, it has no power to claim your soul. Your citizenship lies with God in Christ who redeemed you by way of his own suffering. If you suffer too, you imitate and participate in his atoning grace. It's so hard to see it right now, but it's true. It's an invitation for us this week to look at our lives and say, where am I giving myself to a belief, God, that you owe me a life of uninterrupted stretches of comfort? And help me see what it would look like to trust you in a different way. When we suffer, we learn that our suffering cannot destroy us. Life gets a lot less fragile. It doesn't have the power. No matter how great it may seem at the time, it can't destroy us. Instead, what it will do is purify us. Give us a single-mindedness in our relationship with God. We don't suffer as people condemned. For those who are in Christ, we suffer as those on whom Christ's glory rests. And that means that all of the suffering that we experience in this life is leading us to renewal, all of it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that your word doesn't tell us to ignore suffering, but instead talks about it, recognizes it, acknowledges it, talks about the difficulty how hard it can be to live in this world. And it also talks about the way that you work through difficulty and hardship to make us more like you, to make us more single-minded, to pry our hands off of a need for control in this world. Lord, we're often blind to the ways that we seek to control and manipulate things around us to make our lives function a certain way. Give us the faith to trust you, to walk the road that you lay out for us, and to understand that whatever suffering may come, that it is purifying us, and that it is reminding us that the worst that this world has to throw at us cannot ultimately destroy us, because you are the one who keeps us. So teach us how to walk in that. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.